today. Garfield is the subject not only of the comic strip, but has starred in TV shows and movies, books, and video games. Finally, a week ago Tuesday, a package arrived at the home of John Arbuckle. Welcome. Welcome to Discursive Diddy. If you are listening, this is the second episode of this wonderful podcast in which I talk. That's all I do. All I do is talk to you, the listener. And today, I am going to talk to you about something that is very, 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 very near and dear to my heart. We're talking about Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. Bill, if I fucked up your name, please don't hate me. I love you and I love your work. And for anyone listening, this is going to be an episode in which I just gush for about an hour about something that I really, 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 really like. I don't have any criticisms. Um, It's a beautiful piece of literature from which to see the world. Um, Gosh, I have so much I want to say about this. All of it is quite good. So my history with this comic is, well, first off, I should tell you that I am a big, or was when I was a kid, I was a big funny papers head. I was number one fan looking through those papers, looking for those comics. Um, obviously, Sunday was the best, but every day in the, in the old days of newspaper comics was a good day, as long as you got some goofs and spoofs on the printed page. Um, Calvin and Hobbes was not running, I don't think, in any of the papers that I would have had access to at the time, which would have been either through my grandparents, the dreaded New York Times, or I think we had, I, I can never remember if we had the Sun Sentinel or the um, the other shitty South Florida paper. I mean, they're both trash. Um, but either way, it was never in my worldview in the immediate. Um, what would happen is... We, my father's parents are out in Albuquerque, and we would visit them quite frequently, either in the summer or in the winter, and my grandparents there had that first copy of Calvin and Hobbes, that first uh, printing of the uh, first run of the comic. It had the first comic, and then, you know, up until whichever one it ends at, and that kind of became the family's shared Calvin and Hobbes tome. We would circulate it basically through all the cousins and we would all kind of read it and you know it had that textural feel of a book that's been really passed through a lot of hands and 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 bore witness to many eyes. There was something about Calvin and Hobbes that I always associated with Albuquerque and with going out there because you know as you may know about me or may not I grew up in South Florida, kind of in the outside of the greater Fort Lauderdale area, and that is a very different place from New Mexico and from Albuquerque and from the Southwest generally. And we, I didn't travel a lot as a kid except in the South for the most part. Uh, I was fairly familiar with a lot of Florida um, and then a lot of the South specifically, or particularly a lot of the South on the East Coast, um, we would go up. Uh, my grandparents would take me to visit Civil War battlefields and whatnot. And so going to New Mexico was always this kind of exciting thrill because it was just so alien and so different. And I got to see my grandparents who I would out there who I would never see otherwise. And I got to see all my cousins who, uh, who rarely came to Florida. And so there was just something about the excitement of being a kid. And I used to like uh, going on planes a lot. 
before I developed the phobia that um, it's going to crash and, and kill me. Um, but I used to, when I was a kid, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed all of the process of traveling with your family and whatnot. I enjoyed, like, waking up, being driven to the airport, uh, you know, wait, wait I, I don't know. This, this sounds crazy, but, you know, when I was a kid, it, it was a very interesting, stimulating experience for me that was not part of my regular experience. So anytime something like that would happen, I, I would just, all my senses would be kind of, um, more particularly tuned, more open, and what ended up happening is we would read the Calvin and Hobbes book so ferociously when we would go there, me and my brother, that my parents started just letting us get, anytime we would travel, we would get to pick out a um, Calvin and Hobbes, well, we would get to pick out a book to read on the plane, um, and this is going to be a real callback for any of you South Florida heads, but we would go to the borders i believe it was in sawgrass mills the one that is kind of near oh the one entrance not the target it's on like the opposite side of the target although i think there was one over there too whatever but we would go there and we would pick out a book and usually we would get you know i mean i was at that age kind of like late elementary school where you know i mean I, maybe they would have encouraged me to get something more literate but you know i knew better i got the most literate piece of work you can get which would usually be a calvin and Hobbes book and if you ever grew up reading them you know that there's a lot of them they basically i mean i'm going to talk about it but it's the only real commodified part of what i consider to be a pretty uncommodified piece of media which i will also elaborate on being exceptionally distant in today's world as in everything is hyper commodified and so what i kind of want to do with this is talk about how calvin and hobbes is an exception to that rule in a lot of ways um but so the the one exception to that exception is that the books th there are a lot of books um there are lots of reprintings uh they're all real good um i really like the one of the the best ones one of the last ones i ever got when i was kind of like just coming i won't say out of age because this work is timeless bless it but when i was kind of going full steam into um, puberty and young adulthood. The last one I got was one of the last ones they printed, which was a collection of Bill, of, of our good friend Bill, talking about all of his favorite strips and, and, and comic, like, and issues from uh, the entire history of the comic and and then he would kind of talk about it he would talk about the characters he would talk about his inspiration his motivation and that was for for a young budding uh well i don't flatter myself an artist um that was really interesting to me um kind of a very similar phenomenon a few years later i think when i would discover uh, dvd commentaries it's just this interesting because when when you start when you're younger and even today when you for me, when you are trying to imprint yourself on a piece of uh, creative media, there is something about learning how it's done that I think becomes particularly interesting. Obviously, if you, if you have any desire to, I mean, not that, that I wanted to, to draw comics, even though, I, you know, like all kids, I, I drew a lot of comics, um, but there was something about listening to a very intelligent, a very well-read, well-learned, but also incredibly humble and incredibly poignant creator like Bill, who who has a 100% lock 
on his on his work, which which is something that I've emulated and tried to do my entire life. Um, and you know, you can be the judge if that's working or not. But basically, this idea that you are able to see the thing, the creative thing that you're doing, you're able to see it in not every dimension, obviously, you know, like works surprise even the creators, but you're able to have an almost completely didactic and internalized concept of what it is you're trying to do, not barring that you're going to learn a lot about it on the way, which is something I remember Bill talking a lot in the book about you know, like in, like decisions he thought would work that didn't really work, uh, fights he would get in with the editors, um, just that kind of thing of him trying to develop a thread and bylines. But the thing is that I, I kind of touched on this a little bit in the last episode, or maybe I didn't, that certain mediums engender themselves to this more than others because the misconception with Americans is that being an auteur is is being a genius. We have a very, very skewed and very fake sense that everyone who creates art is, um, or, or even specifically the term auteur, which um, specifically is for film, but it gets used in a lot of uh, vague and broad uh, varieties in this country. And I think the implication is that, it, again, genius, that it's like a Mozart. It's, you know, auteur is somebody who is able to just sit down and their pen or their musical instrument or whatever it be is able to make the most wondrous and incredible and creative work that any mortal dare see. But in reality, what an auteur actually means is, specifically in the film model, but it would be applied to everything, is somebody who is able to do great creative and intellectual and aesthetic feats within a very narrow set of parameters. There's a reason that the auteur directors are all studio directors, you know? And there's a, I mean, and that is, I think, even what appealed to people like Godard is this idea of, it's very, not mechanical, but you think about Kurosawa specifically, and, I, and I'm thinking about Bill here. This idea that you have your medium, you have your format, you have your conventions, and then the question is, what terribly interesting and innovative things can you then do within it? For example, Hitchcock gets brought up a lot, and this is why I really like his war movies a lot. They, they tend to get maligned by the Hitchcock heads who are biting at the chomp to talk about vertigo. And, you know, I mean, and those are good. I like Rear Window a lot. War films, for me, are, are the, the epitome of, of what it is I think he's very good at. Because he's working within very narrow Hollywood parameters. Even though Hitchcock, even, even kind of at this period, is, is a little bit of a, a celebrated Hollywood director. I mean, the studios uh, know what they have on their hands to some degree. But even then, I mean, you know, it's still the Hollywood system, especially like in, when it's actually a physical material monopoly, when they have uh, control of the theaters and, and distribution um, in every way. And so with the war movies, and, and on top of that, there's a, a more or less stricter... I mean, I know Americans don't like thinking this, but there is... We do have censoring in this country so much as it is a de facto thing in which certain tendencies are encouraged and others are maligned. And I think something like Disney is a pretty good current example of that. And so with that, Hitchcock has to work during the war specifically, this is why I brought it up, you know, he has to work with this, you know, he can't make 
a film that's questioning the war effort. I mean, and not not that Hitchcock himself w would have wanted to. Um, I mean, Hollywood is pretty unconditionally and overwhelmingly, minus Ginger Rogers, who was a fascist, um, against the Nazi. You know, there's that. But on top of that, Hitchcock makes just Shadow of a Doubt is probably the best example of this. I, wa I wanted to say Strangers on a Train, but that's technically post-war. But it gets lumped into the same period. Um, it's generally considered the same kind of, like, aesthetic period of Hitchcock. But Shadow of a Doubt, um, which one of my uh, favorite people in film school showed, showed me was, um, showed our class was a really good example, was and is a really good example of what it means to be a genuine uh, auteur because it's just such a fascinating, interesting film and it, and it has so much nuanced commentary on the war and the idea of what you can and can't kind of put your trust and faith and perception into. And I, I think Lifeboat does a similar job. Um, and with that, you know, it's it's not a stretch at all if we're using the correct uh, term, the correct sense of auteur to talk about Bill Watterson. I think it's entirely accurate because Bill talks many times in that one book I was telling you about, about his kind of how he's trying to make what it is he's doing work within the commercial mold, which is not the same thing as saying selling out. And it's absolutely not the same thing as saying he's making you know, a purely commercial product or he's, or he's, or he's creating capitalist propaganda or what have you. I mean, the thing is mass media is dangerous, obviously. I mean, I know I went on a huge rant about it last time, but I was also talking about a show of mass media last time and, and, and the ways it affected me and, and the ways it affects a lot of people I know. And with that, you have to think that if you want to do what Bill's doing, if you want to make what he's making, which I'm going to hopefully kind of break apart a little bit like why it's so good but you have to be willing to accept the angle of mass media distribution and and i hope everything i do is at least in some way accessible to everyone because that that is barring nationalizing these industries and creating a kind of actual utopian society in which the arts are a thing that flourish entirely from individual and collective initiative, you know, if we lived in a genuine communist society, you would be able to make whatever you'd like, and you could see if people would want to support it. If not, you know, I mean, you could make the most obscure, awful stuff in the world, and as long as it makes you happy, you know, I mean, it really doesn't matter if there's no commercial or cash incentive. But unfortunately, we're not in that stage yet, and something that I think Walter Benjamin was very keen on, probably to the detriment of people like Adorno and whatnot, is that mass media is entirely useful because it creates the language and the symbology that then soaks into our everyday discourse. And the thing is, you cannot talk about things like human liberation and liberation from capital without being able to breach the everyday discourse. And I think, I mean, I love a lot of more kind of uh, disciplined and a little more strict uh, leftist personalities, but I, I just cannot necessarily always be them because I think it's so important to make things that are able to be a part of the everyday conversation. I mean, that's the point. It has to penetrate the collective consciousness. Um, maybe not all of it, obviously. I'm, you know, I, I'm a vanguardist. I don't think you know, one good piece of media is going to change everyone's opinion, you know, it, it really only matters who you affect. I mean, it matters. 
and and that's what I think about Calvin and Hobbes a lot because, you know, if Bill is doing all of that, it affected me greatly. I mean, my life is invaluably shaped by that piece of literature. I think about it all the time, and I know I cut off my anecdote earlier, but I, I can kind of like add what was so important to me about Calvin and Hobbes when I first started reading it, and not when I first started, but a little bit later when I was around, um, when I was kind of at the peak of middle school, is that, you know, middle school fucking sucked. Um, puberty fucking sucked, and I was just getting ripped apart by both of those factors. I, I, I was having a very tough time trying to centralize my identity. I mean, obviously that would be a big struggle for the next two decades, but at this time, I have a lot of questions that I can't answer. I can't answer why, why I don't feel comfortable in my body. I can't answer how complicated my sexual responses seem. Um, I can't answer for the shift between childhood and its quote-unquote innocence and adolescence and its not innocence. It didn't help that the middle school I went to was run like a prison. I won't give you, I won't tell you where it is, but you know, if you know where Sagres is, you can at least narrow the choices. And Calvin and Hobbes, once I had, once me and my brother both had kind of assembled a bit of a collection of the books, um, you know, because this is long before uh, you can really get any media digitally in that sense, um, or at least I wouldn't have known how, not in middle school, or had the or had the tools to, to do so. But we would, you know, I would just kind of like consult those books a lot. I, I would read them after school a lot, and, and kind of before school, like especially in the morning, um, before, you know, I had to go to the bus station, um, where I would just get bullied by these really mean girls that were on our bus. And there was a lot of empathetic, I mean, obviously I was cis-identifying at the time, so this is probably, or would be a different, who's to say what the experience would have been if I had grown up a cis woman, and who's to say what the experience would be if I wasn't white. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to universalize this to anyone else's detriment. This is simply um, how it registered and how I responded to it. But a lot of the impetus in Calvin and Hobbes, kind of to tie all of this into a nice little bow, is that Calvin is powerless, and that the, the comic... He, he's not Dennis the Menace, which I think is what Bill, I don't know if he says this or not, but he, he's definitely trying to subvert that trope pretty thoroughly. Because Dennis the Menace is your classic, like, white little shithead. Like, he's a fucking terror, he's a devil. Um, and that's why it was so good when The Simpsons uh, had Bart substitute for him uh, against uh, JFK killer George W. George H. Bush. And so what Calvin is is much different because Calvin doesn't have the surety, the confidence, or the permissibility or even the privilege that somebody like like a character like Dennis has. Dennis can just go around and fucking uh, nightmare. I mean, he, Dennis is U.S. imperialism. He just fucks everything up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It doesn't matter that his neighbor's going to have a heart attack. You know, everybody loves him. He's a, he's a sweet little white kid. Calvin is exactly the opposite of that in that Calvin has an incredible imagination beyond words. He has an incredible gift uh, for intuitive learning. He's not a scholar, and he's not gifted in that sense, but, he, but he's incredibly receptive is a good word to put it and also um influenceable but he's influenceable from a position of almost no allegiances i don't know if i'm doing a good job in articulating this but in in an era especially after calvin and hobbes in the early 2000s when i was in middle school when i was reading these books uh following 
the, you know, the um, September 11th attack. There's just something very different about Calvin being a little white boy than there is about all the other media that is, that is being projected around the same time and after. Because all of that other media makes those, those characters irresponsible for their actions. I mean, it's the Comedy Central homophobic, transphobic, just nuclear missile. It, it, it's, it's, what, it's white men just being themselves and just trampling over everyone and getting away with everything. And the humor is that they don't care and that, you know, that's a whole other episode I'll do at some point. But Calvin is, is distinctly different and it's because he's powerless. He doesn't have any power. He, he's, well, he's very young in the comic, which is kind of a joke. You know, he's, he's about six years old. He's in kindergarten, I think. Um, which is really funny because obviously if you've ever worked around children, kindergartners are not articulate in, in the least. Um, they tend to poop their pants uh, quite frequently, which uh, Calvin has more awareness than to do that. But he's six years old. He has a teacher that is constantly frustrated by him because, you know, Bill is, you know, being a sensible man that he is. Bill understands that the U.S. education system is severely lacking in both resources and incentive um, and any kind of greater collective uh, ambition to actually educate people. He, he, uh, school in Calvin and Hobbes was exactly what school was for me around the same time. I mean, obviously Calvin's six and I was in middle school when I was really into this, but you know, my, like I said, my middle school was, was super, it was built like a prison. It had a lot of security guards. Um, it had a lot of people in it. It was a big middle school. And it was just, it was brutal. It was awful. And it, it felt terrible. I used to just sit there and stare at the clock in all my classes. I would just stare and dream. I would just fantasize and, and I would read a lot. Um, and Calvin has the same experience where his teacher, Miss Wormwood, uh, which is a good C.S. Lewis reference, um, is very frustrated of, of Calvin's obstinance um, because, you know, the kind of the old joke, she's not getting paid enough for that shit. You know, like she has to deal with this on top of everything else. And that alienates Calvin further because he, I mean, it would be stupid and simplistic to say Calvin has a learning disability because th this is a work of fiction and it's, Bill's not trying to do a realist text. Um, th there's absolutely room for that kind of thing in, in other media. I, Calvin and Hobbes is much more, it comes from an older school of literature in which um, it's much more I don't know if allegorical is the right word, but it's much more anecdotal. I mean, it's intentionally, Bill was pretty devoted, and God bless him, but he was pretty devoted to the comic strip format um, in a paper. It, it has arcs, there are things that happen, but much like a sitcom, it always restarts at day one, uh, which I, I think, you know, I'll, maybe I'll talk about it a little later. I think it adds immensely to the charm, and I know it's why a lot of um, intellectuals like Calvin and Hobbes a lot, especially people in the psychoanalytic field, because it it is very, there, there's something very um, soothing about that format. Like, like there is in a sitcom, like, like there is, and it has even less uh, narrative cohesion than a sitcom. I mean, things reappear, you know, his babysitter is, is in, comes back a bunch. I mean, obviously Susie is there and, and whatnot, his teacher and Mo and everything. But compared to the narrative arcs of Frasier or something like that, it, it's, it's much more, uh, anecdotal it's much more of a vignette and so calvin is obstinate in school because much like me and much like a lot of children in this country he isn't getting any kind of an education that's stimulating him it's not engaging with him it's not 
trying to exercise and flex his um, mental capacity or even his emotional capacity. You know, he's being indoctrinated. And I, and I know that sounds maybe hyperbolic to people, but the U.S. education system is absolutely indoctrination. I mean, you don't, you know, you, you tell me if you learned about the massacre in the Philippines. And, and it's based on a Victorian factory model as well. You know, it's it's all about grades and and act, and being able to hit high marks, and um, so Calvin, Calvin's mind is pure. He's almost like pure. He's he's the pure creative will to create for its own sake. I think that's why as a kid, it really responded with me because I I just kind of came to the conclusion early in my life that you just create because you can. That's I wouldn't say it's the most noble thing you can do, but I'm not, you know, that conceited. But but I would say it is one of the more noble endeavors that a human can take part in, to just create for the sheer joy of creating. Um, and I think any kind of cosmology that I would describe to follow, follows a similar vein. And Calvin's mind is, un, like the comic, it's it's uncommerciable. It's un, I mean, even though a big joke is, you know, Calvin kind of being a sucker for... Uh, contemporary trends like you know like hyperviolent movies he, he always wants to watch uh, cartoons all morning um, he eats a cereal that is essentially just sugar um, and and maybe some more sugar but even with all of those Calvin's impulse is 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 always good it's always to create and it's always to create simply for the fun of creating I mean a big joke is that him and Hobbes will often go on adventures to solve Calvin's problems which is really funny which I'll get into in a little bit but for the most part, he just enjoys conceptualizing the world in a way that it's not. And and you got to realize for someone like me who who's going through the pains of puberty, which sucks for everyone. Puberty is a fucking nightmare regardless of your gender orientation. Nobody has a good puberty experience. I'm going through that. I'm also unable to articulate at that time wh why it is I feel so strange and uncomfortable and with these new changes and why they, they seem kind of horrific to me, like growing leg hair and, and chest hair and whatnot, and facial hair. And so this impetus to try and envision a new world is, is was very resonant with me, and not to brag, but, I mean, definitely not to brag, but when I was in middle school, I first started getting into Marxism. I mean, obviously I had a, like, infantile understanding of it but i i think i first checked out the communist manifesto around eighth grade i think maybe it was ninth grade i did it but i think it was eighth grade um and i just started kind of getting into soviet history there you know with the left there's the 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 impetus to imagine a better world obviously because that's what we're fighting for we're fighting for a world that doesn't exist we're fighting for a world that we'd like to see exist and calvin is just he is so committed to that that it's that it's like breathing to him he doesn't even think about it in fact it kind of puts a light on the very silly debate of oh is Hobbes real is he Calvin's imagination is he magic Bill Bill in that book bless the man just is very adamant that it, it doesn't matter Cal Hobbes is who Hobbes is he is a talking tiger to Calvin and he's a stuffed animal to other people there is no this hyper obsession that we have now to constantly know why everything is the way it is without any kind of more broad understanding of truths um, I mean everything in Disney Star Wars has to be codified and codified and, and put through the ringer 
um, everything in Marvel has to be given uh, be given an exact thing, and, and you know, people always want to hear, like, well, why and how, and then Bill is making a comic, he's making a newspaper comic that's going to run the funny papers, and, and funny paper heads such as myself are going to read it, be that children or adults, and for him to do what he would like to do narratively and intellectually and emotionally, it takes precedent that Hobbes is a talking tiger, and that Calvin experiences him in a way that others do not. There's no need, there's literally no need to quantify that. You don't need to come to any kind of conclusion. It is just what it is. Um, and it's also kind of how I felt about The Lighthouse. Uh, I got into a lot of arguments with my boo, Jay, about it, but um, I, I kind of just felt that there is no definitive understanding of what happened, where they are, what's going on. It's, it is what it is. It's a creative and narrative unfolding of events that occur in a certain stylized way that impart a kind of thematic and emotional response on the viewer. Calvin and Hobbes was probably one of the first pieces of work that really taught this lesson to me, that really just helped me in my mind conceptualize what it is when you're making something, when you're trying to do a fictional endeavor or a creative endeavor, what it is you want to do and how it suits you. Because Hobbes and Calvin have a very special relation, because I'll finish what I was trying to say, that Calvin is maligned at school, Miss Wormwood uh, doesn't understand him and isn't getting paid enough to understand him, so she's, you know, she frequently becomes just a disciplinarian, she frequently sends him to the principal, um, and then that just kind of, you know, makes Calvin feel worse. Um, Susie is a, a very intelligent and perceptive young girl, and she's very sweet, but Calvin, you know, is at that point where he just cannot, he can't, deal with it. He can't deal with any of the repercussions of that, um, of even just her being a friend. So he acts out in a, in a very self-destructive way. So that, so, you know, his only friend in school is, is, is always on very tenuous ground with him. And then obviously there's Mo who, like I said, we're all, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us, especially almost all of us in the queer community are very familiar with, um, being bullied when you're younger for any reason. I mean, I, you know, you know, the bullies that would kind of make fun of me couldn't have had any idea that I was trans or even remotely have guessed that. But, you know, I'm just, to them, I was pathetic. That's kind of the case with Calvin and Mo. Mo is just so much bigger and intimidating than him that Calvin doesn't have any choice but to acquiesce. But the important thing is that Calvin generally never loses his dignity. He, he, he cherishes his mind as opposed to Mo's brute strength and brutality and and I know that's a tricky line of thought because you know one day you'll wake up in your movie Bob but with Calvin it's different because again Calvin is powerless he ha he has no control over any of the circumstances around him and also children are powerless I don't think we talk about that enough we're in this I was talking to uh, L yesterday about this but we're in this weird era in which we're constantly celebrating children we're always talking about how children are getting things done and the children know what's up and the zoomers are gonna do this and this and children are terrified they have no power they're a very very vulnerable and marginalized group everything for them is decided by other people and their brains haven't even come close to completely forming and so just this fetishization of them in any direction is so disgusting to me they're the wards of a society they are 
your next generation, they are your kin. You treat them with the same respect you would anyone, but you also understand that you're bigger than them, that you're more powerful than them, and you don't victimize them, and you don't, in any direction, you don't weaponize who they are in any thing, in any way other than what it is, because children need to develop on their own. They need to come to conclusions, and they need to be encouraged, and they need to be given incentive and Calvin, like I keep saying, is absolutely powerless. He has none of this. It, it, people love him. His parents love him. But like Miss Wormwood, his parents are infinitely flustered by him and his erratic behavior, the fact that he does become self-destructive. And they also don't quite know how to quantify his creative ambitions. They're so instinctual and overwhelming that they're kind of just... A chore on his parents I mean they would never they encourage it but you know the the joke of the comic because it is a comic is that you know they would rather he be a nice little like kid like Susie and he you know follow the rules do his homework um, eat his vegetables etc and that resonated with me as well just because I had a lot of things that I couldn't articulate at the time and I'm sure I was kind of a fucking mess to handle and then obviously in high school is when you know like corn pop became a bad bad dude ran with some bad some bad people um no i mean i was just a shithead like everyone else was again because you know, this idea that you know calvin is the kind of character he is at the kind of stage he is at the kind of uh, marginalized position he is and me reading it in middle school is is very similar in that sense because when you're a young adult going through adolescence you also are are fairly power you're powerless to your hormones you you aren't very good or knowledgeable or have any familiarity with these new feelings and especially if you have dysphoria it's an incredibly incomprehensible experience it's almost impossible at a young age to articulate which is why you know obviously it's so important that we exist in a society in which young people are free and open and encouraged to discuss their feelings on gender so you can help them work through it from an early age. There's just something, because Calvin is your focal point, every strip for the most part centers around him. You get very good moments from everyone else because Bill, like Deep Space Nine, understands that it's a macro and a micro thing that you have to be pulling out and pulling in. And so you'll get, Calvin's mom is probably my favorite character in the comic. Uh, she gets a lot of cool out she gets like a lot of cool 90s outfits in the in in, in the first few in the f first few years um she's got a very good wry sense of humor she's incredibly confident in who she is as a person and so then it's mostly just her frustration at having to deal with these two dumb men in her life um obviously calvin who she loves but he's a handful and she's a stay-at-home mom I believe. I don't know that we've ever gotten anything to contest that. Uh, I think she's home almost all the time. I know the dad obviously works. He's like a copyright, copyright lawyer, I think, or um, something like that. And obviously the dad is very well-meaning. He's, he's a bit, by Bill's own admission, he's a bit of a caricature on the fuddy-duddy kind of father. Um, I mean, he's draw I like that he's drawn like a, an 80s yuppie, even though they aren't yuppies at all. Um, they're either not doing as well as some of their neighbors or they're cheap either or they don't have a lot of the luxuries that calvin wants or encounters they don't have a tv for a while uh or no they have a tv they don't have a vhs player for a while because calvin's always begging them 
to go to the video store to rent a VHS player so we can watch like B movies and like you know uh, adult films um, not adult films in the sexual sense but he wants to watch like hyper violent media and whatnot and I mean the dad's job would make me think I mean they live in a nice I've always wondered where they live they live I assume in the Northeast. Identical parts of the country that I've ever seen to those trips are places like New Hampshire and Vermont, um, or even upstate New York. I, I could be wrong, obviously. I'm, I, I didn't do any research for this, by the way. I should clarify that, because that's the policy of this show. I don't want it to be an info dump, and I especially don't want to be some cranky leftist just shouting at people and scolding people on how to live. I'm simply talking. I'm simply expressing my thoughts and views and anecdotes on things, and... I didn't do any research because also I have this comic fucking memorized. I read it like I go through the whole thing like a couple times a year or every and I, I just know everything about it pretty much. So I don't really need to do anything. Um, I don't know if Bill says where they are. I don't know where he lives. I'm sure I could look it up easily. But they're, they're, they're somewhere. Kevin is very Kevin also had a very different childhood than than I did in so much as he has nature outside. You know, he has those huge like forests and and just kind of like big open areas of nature by him and and i think the, the episode where he gets the car where he puts the they try to drive the car i think or um they basically it ends up in a ditch uh kind of makes me think that they don't live in a very crowded suburban they don't live in like a south florida suburban setup which is much more like southern california and kind of like out the you know outside of chicago it's the classic and texas it's like the classic endless row of McMansion bullshit and I get the feeling that they live in a bit of an older development it, it, when I'm walking through the streets of Portland I think about it a lot um, I don't I mean maybe it's based out here I don't think it is but this kind of idea that you'll be walking through neighborhoods and it'll just have huge trees and and you're not that close always to your neighbor which again was very different from my experience growing up growing up in South Florida is the closest thing I can say is that it's like growing up on a terraformed planet and I mean that in a bad way uh, especially in South Florida if you know anything about it they I mean the whole state the state is first off beautiful I should say and and it does have a lot of nature and I think the Everglades is where my heart will always be it's probably the prettiest point on the planet it's just endlessly gorgeous and it's a unique ecosystem and biodome it doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet it's only in South Florida um, so, you know, obviously the state and the fucking scum monsters that run it are trying to do everything in their power to obliterate it. But the suburbs are very different because they've been, the Everglades have been drained um, in that point. My, my brother made a good point the other day about how if Florida, once Florida's left to its own devices or when it was, that basically everything from like Boca Raton down is just wet. Um, obviously North and Central Florida is very different, but everything in South Florida would just traditionally be wet. I mean, the Everglades, it, it's not correct to call it a swamp, but it is like a wetlands. It is a wetlands. And, um, and so when they built a lot of the development around there, I mean, South Florida is also very new, which was very weird growing up. Cause you know, again, you get the hint that Calvin's living in a neighborhood that's probably been there for a while i mean the house is a kind of classic older house i see a lot of those up here in portland i do see a lot of houses that look like that but but you know you also see them in new hampshire and vermont and stuff like but in south florida it's it's very new i mean my grandparents moved there with my mother in the late in the mid to late 70s and they moved out to plantation Man, I should not. I'm gonna get docks. I'm putting out weight. Well, whatever. I don't live there anymore. My parents don't even live there anymore. They were in plantation. They moved in the in the mid to late 70s, and 
even at that time, a lot of the, what was there when I was growing up wasn't even there yet. That's how new everything is. The oldest stuff is not even that old. Um, I mean, obviously you have, you know, for any of you real South Florida heads, you have, you have the Stranahan house, you know, out on the river, and you have, um, you know, older stuff there and whatnot. And obviously Central and North Florida is a bit older and the Keys and stuff. but. A lot of that development is very recent. I mean, it's very, it's very suburban. And I, I, in a way, I'm happy that I grew up like that because it, I think it shaped a lot of my politics. I, I just found it intolerable. And, and again, going back to this idea of trying to envision a different world. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love things like the Everglades and I love South Florida sunsets. And I have a lot of people I love there who are there still. Those kinds of developments are hell. And, and with Calvin, it was kind of an escape. I could live vicariously through him because he had an entire ravine practically that he could get in his wagon with Hobbs and just like crash around. And then in the winter, obviously, he would build these insane sledding uh, courses and, and, and snowman dioramas, snow people dioramas. And that was much different. And it added a lot to the allure uh, of reading it. Um, but then I, I, I kind of... I've just been reading it consistently. I, I don't remember. I read it a lot in middle school. And then I high school is just a lot going on. So I, I couldn't really tell you. I'm sure I would get high occasionally and pick it up. Um, I mean, when I first started smoking weed, everything was fun again. Um, we used to just get high and play with Legos. Uh, hell yeah. I, I kind of think I got back into it. And then it was it was specifically after I lived in New York for a year. I had to come back. I, was, I definitely did the fail child thing where I had to come back and live with my parents for a year to kind of get myself back on my feet and 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 just kind of get my shit together and I kind of rediscovered it around because all the books were there and I, I was going through all the books and I rediscovered and you know I had been that was after the period I mean I like I said I've been radical to some degree for a, a long time but obviously it ebbs and flows with my different perceptions and conceptions of the world and how things work and that was the period that was after Occupy, so I was hypercharged. I mean, you know, that, that, that's just, basically from there till now is not very changed. I mean, obviously a lot has changed with me, but my politics have just been very far left from, from that point ever on. And I kind of rediscovered the comic through that period, just through those eyes. And I just, well, I had also finished, well, just barely finished undergrad, and so, I was a little bit more aware of the intellectual references that Bill drops because Bill is, like I said, he's, he's super competent and he's super intelligent. He went to art school, um, which, which I please do not think this is me saying you have to do those things. Not at all. As you will find out, and I think I'm doing a whole episode on it, I want to abolish the U.S. education system. Fuck it into the sun. Um, but Bill had the privilege of going to art school and, and he puts it that knowledge to good use. He's not pretentious about it. That's what I think I've always liked about him is that he's not showing off. He's bringing them up, these concepts up in a way that enhances his own work because what he's doing is he's validating his own work. He's, he's making what I think is a very correct call that doing comics in a way that is genuine and genuinely radical and in this sense we could say like genuinely radical in its compassion in the fact that it doesn't just propagate the ruling ideology especially at a time when almost all comics were doing that i mean all okay this is a sidebar but this podcast is made for sidebars all comics 
A lot of comics at that time sucked. I was a funny papers head and I was reading them pretty ferociously and most of them are dog shit. Most of them are just a fucking jumbled mess. They're not funny. Even Foxtrot I liked a lot as a kid. I had one of those books because, you know, once you once I finished the Calvin and Hobbes anthology, I had to kind of start scrounging for something else. Um, I got into the far side, which the far side fucking rules. I might do a show on, I might do an episode on that at some point. The far side is real good. That's the other, it's like Calvin and Hobbes and the far side are the two golden era of this period of this medium. But Foxtrot, it's okay. I mean, it was just way too much of its time. It was constantly dropping references. It, now, I don't think a Zoomer, see the thing is when I was reading Calvin and Hobbes, when I first got a hold of that book, it's old. I mean, Calvin and Hobbes is late 80s. I, I'm not, you know, I, well, I'm not going to get my age out, but well, I guess I've done that before. But I, I'm not born until the late, late 80s. I'm, I'm, I'm a child in the early 90s. And so Calvin and Hobbes is a bit older than me. Like, I, I couldn't understand the, that one reference about the VCR, um, that they had to rent the VCR. I, I didn't understand that because we just had a VCR. Um, we, you actually, you know, call, chalk it up to either privilege or the more accessible commodification of certain technologies, but there are a couple of references that were a little dated in that sense, a little, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, it holds firm. And not even then. Now, when I was reading it in 2013 and 2012, incredible. When I was reading it on the plane to come to Portland in December, in late December of last year, incredible, amazing. It holds up like the finest wine. It, it, it is absolutely a timeless piece of work and it's because bill was very again he was very controlled about what the world what of the world he brought in because again calvin is going to be a limited perspective any character is going to be a limited perspective and an artist need to, to be more cognizant of the fact that they have a limited perspectives this idea that an artist can put their fingers into everything is i think counter-revolutionary but calvin is is a very, I keep saying this, I know it's probably annoying, but it's anecdotal and vignette are the only like kind of things that come to mind. Anecdotal really, I think, makes sense for me because it's a story that makes sense to a lot of us. I'm not gonna say it makes sense to everyone because that would be erasing different perspectives, but it makes sense to a lot of people who I think read it pretty judiciously like I did. And that has given it a timeless quality because, you know, like I said, I didn't even know that it was, um, that it was, I thought it was contemporary. I just thought it wasn't in the papers that I was reading. I, I thought um, at the time that it that it was running, and I, I think it was very briefly. I think me and Kevin and Hobbs have a little bit of an overlap, but I remember it as if it was just a thing of the time. I had no idea that it was that it was like almost like a half a decade earlier or whatnot, um, or actually at that point more than a decade um, if I'm reading it in middle school. Foxtrot, I have not read it recently, so if anyone out there is a big Foxtrot head, I do not mean to step on you. I'm sure there are some comic, there are some strips that are really good, but overwhelmingly, I mean, is a is a joke about World of Warcraft gonna really resonate with a lot of people? I know people are still playing it, but are Zoomers gonna really like be able to grapple onto that in the same way that you can grapple onto Calvin when he finds out when they get the um, the raccoon? Was it a raccoon? That they yes, it was a raccoon that they find, I think, and they want to nurse it back to health, and it doesn't happen and Calvin's very distraught about it or maybe it was a no it was a bird I believe oh man I should have done my research oh well I, it was a bird or a raccoon but I had a very similar experience when we were kids we, we rescued a possum and and me and my brother both got very invested in his in its safety and well-being and it also did not recover and that was very sad to us so when something like that happens and then you read about something like that there's an immediate connection whereas 
a lot of the comics of that period, like a lot of the media, was just hyper-focused on being of the moment, of being relevant. Um, I mean, co newspaper comics pretty much end with Calvin and Hobbes. I have no problem saying that. The Boondocks is really good, obviously. You should read The Boondocks. If you don't like Aaron Magruder, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, quality TV and quality comics. But a lot of it was just... A lot of it, I mean, the thing is, it, it was, like, aimed at boomers, I have to imagine. I mean, even though, like, I guess kids were reading it, but a lot of those comics were just basically boomer comics. They were about people not understanding how the world's changing in the most minute ways that have no connection to politics or to, or to big cultural things. It's just, I mean, that period is filled, even, like, Frazier does it, that period is just filled with the stupidest, most boring, asinine commentary on the dumbest, littlest things. Ooh, you're online dating. Hmm, I don't know if I could ever meet someone who I've never met before. Just just stuff that today doesn't even register with us. It washes over us like, like a warm mist. And Calvin and Hobbes rightly ignores most of that. Bill was kind of a crank in that he didn't like Jurassic Park. Because he, 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 this is the last thing I'll say because I'm, man, I have so much to say too and I've gone way over. Um, Bill is, is the other big connection that I'll make with myself is that growing up and even in Albuquerque, there was a really good natural history museum. If anyone is, I have friends out there and family, I should contact them about this, but there's an amazing natural history museum that they had a fucking awesome dinosaur exhibit. It was like a ride where you'd go on like an elevator and you get transported to the past. Oh man, A plus. It was incredible. Better than anything at Disney. And that I love that. And then obviously, uh, wow, this is a show about Albuquerque and South Florida. Um, but then obviously South Florida and Fort Lauderdale, we have the um, a really good natural history museum there as well. Well, it's a museum of, I think it's Museum of Science and Discovery. But growing up, I'll try to condense this. This is a, a dense thought that I'll probably have to do a whole episode on. Growing up, there felt to be more impetus when you were young on scientific and natural discovery than there does today. And I don't know if it's fair to say this, but I was thinking last night that Calvin's interests are dinosaurs. He likes learning about dinosaurs. Not even just, he's not just a, a fucking psycho, like sicko that, you know, imagines I'm eating people, which he does, but he likes learning about them. He likes learning about paleontology, which I also had a, a big interest at the period. I used to watch, uh, like, Walking with Dinosaurs a lot, um, the BBC documentary. And I would read about a lot of those. I read like a lot of the big, I like art by like, um, by middle school, I used to get made fun of, well, not made fun of, but people would tease me because I was reading um, that, that one guy, one paleontologist who's big into T-Rex and he has like a lot of interesting theories on T-Rex. I think the other classmates were just kind of confused and amused that, that I was into something. So, uh, I mean, middle school was also weirdly the last period I was like academically on fire before I just stopped caring in high school or before I kind of became like Calvin and was just unmoldable and kind of pursuing things pretty violently at my own interest. Bill is is a big, he's a big dinosaur head and, and he, his illustrations of them are beautiful. I mean, obviously he didn't know as much as we know today about things like feathers and, and how closely related they are to birds. He does, with everything he has, he does some of the most amazing work. I mean, those illustrations could be in museums um, and he knows that and, but he's not He's decidedly not making illustrations to go in museums. He wants to make something that is going to go in a mass commodifiable piece of information delivery, a newspaper he wants to make, or a book later. He wants to make something that you, that every person who is able to is going to look at it and be able to derive something from it. And that just means so much to me. And just the great sympathy that Calvin engenders. And and of course, I like I, I hope I'm not 
tried to underplay the idea of a white boy being representation. I, if it's my experience, it's because when I was cis-identifying, it, it felt very much like my experience. But I'm not saying it's the universal experience. I'm not saying it's the best experience or the only experience. Not, not at all. If Covenant Hub did not register with someone, that is perfectly fine, and I understand that completely. I think there's just something so utopian. I'll, I'll try to like wrap everything up because I'm way over. But there is something so utopian in the fact that Bill was so doggedly engaged in a mass commodifiable piece of art but he would never, never let it bend in any ways that would cheapen it, that would take away from the significance of its message, which I think is radical compassion and empathy and wonder, which I think are all communist values. I don't have any problem saying that those three are probably... I mean, you know, we, we, we get so in the weeds of dialectics and, and theory and whatnot, but why are you a communist? You're a communist because you want to see a world in which compassion empathy and understanding and wonder rule the day that's absolutely why you're communist if you're not you're bullshitting yourself i'm sorry like if you're not fighting for the kind of world that would somebody like calvin's imagination could flourish in, what are you fighting for and it's just influenced so much of what i do i i launched my uh the patreon today um which i guess if any of you make it this far in the podcast you'll know now um, or if you didn't see me do it earlier. And I, I made it very clear on that, that I, I'm never going to do paywalls. I, I'm morally re repulsed by them. I, I don't, even even though I'm broke as shit right now and kind of having an intense anxiety attack about it, I'm never going to put my work behind a paywall, ever. It's my, it's my solemn promise to everyone. I, you know, it's the legacy of Bill. It's the legacy of Calvin and Hobbes. I'm not going to commodify my work. If people want to see it, they see it. That's it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. If you want to see the thing that I've done creatively, you see it. And I'm sorry, but that would be a genuine communist state of media consumption in that people make media, people are able to enjoy it at their leisure, when they want to, how they want to. No ands, no buts, no ifs. I'm sorry, but if we lived in a post-scarcity state, artists are not becoming rich. We should not have a class of wealthy celebrities who are completely materially detached from everything. Not everything should be behind a, nothing should be behind a fucking paywall. Everything should be available to everyone and everyone's needs should be met. And yeah, I guess I'll wrap it up with that. Um, I adore this comic. I love Calvin and Hobbes. I read it all the fucking time. I'll probably read it soon again. Um, if you can acquire digitally the copy that is online and that is the complete collection it's very good to read on a computer or a tablet um all right well i hope i haven't been too gushy um i'm sure there are going to be lots of topics moving forward of things that i love and you know what in an era of clout chasing and people being negative and everyone attacking everyone and fucking leftists infighting it's nice to just talk about something you love and you know what I love all of you. Uh, an animated show, come on. You know, I, I was dying, I was jumped at the chance because I wanted to see, I wanted to see.